Apparently, we've gone through an entire market cycle in just the past few months, and that warp speed is something Liz Ann Saunders is closely following. Hi, I'm John Sullivan with 401k Specialist, and you are listening to the 401k Specialist Podcast, a news and information resource to help 401k advisors optimize their business and outperform for their clients. Last Thursday, Liz Ann, the high-profile chief investment strategist with Charles Schwab, joined us to make sense of all that's happening, which, surprisingly, she says, is not only COVID-driven. We discussed recent hypervolatility, the response by the Fed, the effects of the stimulus, and a possible Joe Biden presidency. Uh, Lizanne, I've heard discussions recently that we're not so much in a bull market or a bear market, but a kangaroo market because it's jumping around <laughs> so much. Uh, they said it somewhat jokingly, but is there any truth to it? I think there is, and I don't think it's just specific to the uh, sort of COVID era. I think that the nature of the rise of the machines and the dominance on day-to-day trading of algos and quants and other machine-based trading has really exacerbated swings in the market. Not necessarily a persistently elevated VIX or other measure of volatility, but I think wilder swings in both directions and they can sort of turn on a dime, uh, not necessarily having a precise fundamental driver for it. And then of course in this COVID era, we're just at warp speed. And uh, that's the nature of a health crisis. It becomes an economic crisis by virtue of literally just shutting the entire economy down, plus the speed with which the Fed and Congress came to the rescue. Everything is just happening in warp speed. And we're, we've gone through an entire market cycle in a you know few-month period. It's really quite extraordinary. We hear so much about Sir John's famous, you know, four most famous dangerous words in investing that it's different this time, but you are actually saying it is different this time, driven by technology? Well, there's, so yeah, there's the uh, more secular change in the nature of the market and how much money is in the hands of machine-based trading. And that'll ebb and flow over time. And frankly, it's impossible to try to quantify what it is on a percentage of trading volume basis because there is a gray area. There's a lot of even traditional funds that have some sort of quant-based strategy to them. But there's no question that there's more machine-driven trading. Our access to information comes fast and furiously in this environment. Our ability to trade on that with uh, you know a couple uh, buttons on a phone uh, does mean that the landscape is very different than it's been, certainly uh, was in John Templeton's time frame. That said, I think his other famous line about bull markets born on pessimism, growing on skepticism, maturing on optimism, and dying on euphoria, what I don't think has changed is that ultimately at extremes and at turning points in the market, it's investor psychology that drives things more so than any of the fundamentals that we typically focus on on a day-to-day basis. I, we have not repealed the uh, sort of laws of, of fear and greed, and I think we're seeing a bit of that these days too. Absolutely. You said in your most recent outlook that the second half of the year will be cloudy. How so? Well, we are in the initial uh, phase of reopening, obviously, and the law of small numbers is such that when you uh, compress economic data, in many cases, you know, to near down 100%, the percentage jump off that low looks remarkable. And that's the phase we're in right now. You saw it with retail sales, you saw it with today's Philly Fed, you saw it with industrial production, and I think we'll, and, and of course, May's jobs report. And I, I think as we get the most recent months of data, we're gonna see some of those move, but it's really in the next several months, looking later into the summer, where we get a sense of the real trend beyond the point where we're just seeing pent up demand at work. Uh, you know, people have been cooped up and they're antsy. They got their stimulus checks. They're st- 
still hopeful that if they lost their job, it's only temporary. I think it's going to take a few months to get a real sense of what the nature of this recovery looks like its speed. Do we have fits and starts? I, I'm not, I'm not a natural born skeptic by any means. So I'm not suggesting there's no way this is a V-shaped recovery. I think it's more likely to be kind of W rolling W's and remember you know, the first half of a W is a V. Yeah, that's yeah, very good. Do you think that we're going to test the market lows um, from March at all, or do you think we moved on at this point? Uh, yeah, the the honest answer is I don't know. I think I think the data, either specific to the economy, even absent a second wave in the virus, or of course data specific to the virus, I think would have to be um, quite dire. Uh, now, that doesn't mean that we couldn't go through a corrective phase, even if was more bouts of the kind of weakness we saw last week if you either get negative news on the economy or uh, or on the virus. I think one of the risks, and it, this wouldn't necessarily mean the market would have to go back down to uh, the March lows, is we really have very little clarity on earnings. And that's why I think nobody's really bothering to do valuation analysis because it'll lack a conviction in the E, certainly on a forward basis. We may not get much precise color once we get second quarter earnings reports because so many companies have withdrawn guidance, but we may give analysts uh, a little bit clearer a picture in order to maybe try to plug in a more accurate set of numbers for 2020 and 21, then we maybe be, are able to do more precise valuation analysis. And if it turns out the consensus numbers out there now are too high, then I think we have a serious valuation problem and the, the pullback could be more severe. But if this recovery that we're starting to see in the economy really does have legs and that in turn leads analysts to raise estimates, then we suddenly have not as bad a valuation picture. So, you know, I don't know about a retest. I think that the data, the news, virus and economic would have to be pretty dire to kind of go all the way back down to those levels. But it certainly could happen. You said that earnings, uh, quote, were eye, will be eye-opening. I thought that you meant that they would be surprising, but you're saying that they would just give a clearer picture of what's I ahead. think they, hopefully, again, you know, so many companies, a third of the S&P has just withdrawn guidance. Uh, so I don't expect them to sort of add guidance with any kind of precision back into the mix. But the their outlooks for the second half of the year, especially around the metrics that I think matter most right now, particularly... Uh, what they're thinking with regard to their employee base, uh, a sense of, of what percentage of these layoffs that have been temporary might become permanent. So you, you, just, just a bit more color that hopefully we are going to get from companies, uh, I think will matter much more than whether they beat or, or uh, miss numbers for the second quarter. I also think what's important is to hear how the quarter looked on a month-by-month -month basis because what we remember from first quarter earnings season is that we were dealing with two decent months for the economy obviously january and february and then one poor month which wasn't even a full month there was this assumption that second quarter was just going to be three horrible months but if the recent data is any indication we might find that there what happened in June was a heck of a lot better than what had happened in, in April. And that I think will either reinforce or deny the views about whether a V-shaped recovery, whether sort of the lows in the economy are in. And even if we move in fits and starts where we don't have to look back to another 
significant move down. So it may turn out that Q1 was just a partial weakness. Q2 might just be partial weakness with recovery on the back end of that. I think that'll be an important tell when we hear from companies. Understood. Lizanne, what do you think will be the effects both in the short term and the long term on the market from all the stimulus recently introduced? Well, I think in the short term, we're seeing it. What what the Fed has done in adding $3 trillion to its balance sheet in a span of time that was, again, warp speed, certainly relative to how long it took back in the 08 era. Now, they were sort of inventing the tools that are now being used in that environment. So it naturally took a longer period of time. Um, it also took longer for Congress to to act back during the financial crisis. So the speed factor, I think, is important and all the ma- the magnitude of what the Fed has done. And interestingly, when the Fed made its announcement in late March about some of the facilities that they were newly creating for this crisis, kind of bridging the gap uh, to Main Street and and working in partnership with the Treasury Department, I think that was a big force underneath uh, stocks, not just the narrative of Fed is easing policy, ergo good for risk assets. That's been a narrative in play for 12 years now, but actually stepping in to stabilize the problems in the corporate bond market, bring spreads in, uh, again, work with Treasury Department to uh, set up facilities to be there in case some of the Main Street lending programs weren't uh, sufficient or weren't tapped. And just those words, actually, before many of these facilities were even opened up, were even implemented, uh, did a lot to calm the credit markets, which in turn fed into the equity markets, not to mention that they're you know, they've become big buyers again, certainly during the worst part of the crisis of treasuries of mortgage-backed securities. And the holders of, of those securities that's, that sold to the Fed have to put that money to work. And they put, they, you know, seem to have put it to work in, uh, in equities. So it, it, it's had a huge impact. Longer term, you know, Powell's been very open about saying, look, we're going to put these tools back in the toolbox when we see it's appropriate. So the whole you know, how do they taper um, without causing a market riot? The good news is, is that many of these facilities haven't been tapped. That's really good news. So it would be much more difficult for the Fed to sort of extricate itself from this if all of these facilities were, were being tapped, but they're not. They're not adding to the balance sheet at the pace they've allowed themselves to. So if we continue to see that, I think the ability, the ability for the Fed to kind of back away while still keeping the Fed funds rate at zero will be a lot easier than if companies were tapping those facilities in an all-out way because of, of a more dire economic scenario. Are you a Jerome Powell fan? I'm hearing yes. Yes, I am. I, I, I see uh, some of the criticisms. I, I understand. I, I, I believe there's merit to the unintended consequences of, of sort of mucking around with, with true price discovery. I, I think it's a factor in widening the wealth gap, given that the, what the Fed has done, not just in this crisis, but the last crisis, hasn't really done much to reflate the real economy, but done a heck of a lot to uh, bring inflation into asset prices. And obviously, by their nature, they're held by those on the wealthier end of the spectrum. Uh, that said, um, you really did need to take extraordinary measures, I think, in this extraordinary environment in order to try to bridge that uh, gap uh, in an environment where you've had 46 million people file for unemployment insurance. So, you know, we'll we'll write lots of books about this down the road. And of course, it's the ultimate counterfactual, quite frankly, as it was back in the financial crisis. There are many say, 
you know, the Fed, the Fed really made errors here. If they hadn't done fill in the blank, QE, taken rates to zero, you know, we would have been better off. But that's a counterfactual. We'll never know whether it would have made it worse or would have made it better. And I think we're going to be dealing with that counterfactual this time, too. Turning to international markets, are there areas of the world to avoid right now from an investing standpoint because they will take longer to recover from the coronavirus? You know, we don't do a lot of country to country analysis right now from a tactical recommendation perspective. Um, we'll get a little more in the weeds on the U.S. market uh, doing cap recommendations and sector recommendations. But outside the U.S., we will if we if we have a tactical call, so to speak, it would be on developed international markets broadly or on emerging markets broadly. Right now, we happen to be what we call neutral across all three. Um, but that actually means you have exposure to both developed international markets and emerging uh, markets. So it's neutral, but, but that, for many investors, if they were to get to neutral based on, say, a strategic asset allocation structure, they'd probably have to buy both developed markets and emerging markets because there's been such a bias toward the U.S. market that many investors just don't have that global diversification and we think they should. I mean, you see the benefits of that this year, not just stocks versus bonds and the, the anchor to windward that bonds provided, just particularly treasuries during the, the worst part of the, the downturn in the stock market, but um, some of the emerging markets, not least being in Asia and China specifically, have been good diversifiers this year, have had pretty healthy performance. So uh, we haven't changed ratings on emerging markets or developed international markets, but we do think that diversification is actually going to pay rewards. It hasn't been a very rewarding discipline in the last many years, but we think for a variety of reasons, dispersion widening out, correlations coming down. We think diversification matters more than it's been in recent years. And we also think it gives an edge or at least levels the playing field for active management, not instead of passive management, but it's been such an unlevel playing field. We think that active managers are now at least playing on a leveler field. They have more opportunity to maybe add some value. Understood. You think that it's almost the, the revenge of the active managers that have gotten beat up, beat up so for so long <laughs> uh, that, that now it's yeah, the kind of their think, time to shine. I think the nature of this crisis too. You know, when we came out of the global financial crisis, everybody was sort of hurt the same way. The global financial system collapsed, so the crawlback was very similar. The nature of the health crisis is such that you're going to see very divergent. Um, performance in terms of, of what happens in the economy based on what health systems are, how effective can social distancing be, all of those obvious issues are not applied evenly across the, the world, not to mention the power of central banks varying um, within emerging markets. I think there's risky areas if they're emerging markets that are sort of desperate for dollars in order to pay down uh, debt. So I just think that there's going to be a bigger dispersion uh, which does ostensibly give an active manager uh, possibly a leg up. Now they have to they have to pick the right <laughs> stocks, industries, regions, of course. But sure. it's just been a very difficult environment when everything was so highly correlated, particularly post financial crisis. I think those correlations long term are coming down. What about China? You said you don't necessarily recommend country specific, but we did hear you last year talk about the trade negotiations that were occurring at the time between the U.S. and China. This year, it's very different issues, obviously, between the, the two massive economies. What do you foresee there? 
So obviously tensions are, are heating up again. And I, I think the, the nature of both sides, especially in a, an American election year, is such that I think those tensions will likely flare more so than they're likely to calm down. Um, we know now in hindsight, and it was certainly hurt by virtue of the pandemic, that part of the, the phase one promises, at least on the part of, of, of China, part of that deal uh, that required China to purchase you know, X dollars across a number of different goods, including agricultural goods, the, the bottom line is there's just no way those targets are going to be hit. So does that cause additional negotiations to fall apart? Is there too much animosity to get come back to the table and say, okay, in this post-pandemic world, how do we address this? But there's no question that what was already a pretty tenuous relationship between the two largest economies has become even more so by virtue of, uh, of the, the virus. So I, I think geopolitics as a volatility driver, I think will be with us even post-election. Luzanne, when did you know that the virus would be a problem that would seriously impact world markets? I don't know that I, I knew any earlier or later than anybody else. We all got the news at the same time. You know, I wrote a report on, I think it was January 27th, that I titled Virus. It happens to be a, a rock song name and it fit. And it wasn't so much a warning that the virus was going to be a pandemic or a bigger issue. The report actually, and it kind of ties to the current environment, was about how stretched investor sentiment had gotten, you know, into the extreme optimism zone, how much complacency there was. And basically the, the, the point, uh, uh, the headline, the exclamation point of that report was that when sentiment gets so stretched like that, when you kind of move into euphoria territory, um, it doesn't in and of itself mean that the market is vulnerable. We know it's generally a contrarian indicator at extremes typically needs some sort of catalyst. And I suggest at the time that the virus could be that catalyst. We know now in hindsight that it was the mother of all catalysts. Um, but I, I think, you know, fast forward to today, and in some cases, certainly within the options market, we're seeing levels of, of speculation and euphoria um, that are well, well beyond what we saw back in January. And in many cases, again, particularly in the options market, more extreme, uh, or at least as extreme as we've seen since circa 2000. So that, that, that part of this latest move up in the market does trouble me because I think at, at, at you know, best, we've got complacency. At worst, we're sort of back in euphoria mode. Understood. Last question, and it's a big one. <laughs> Do you think that the markets will like a Biden presidency? So I think, first of all, we're not going to have a real sense of the validity of the polls if we can even ever have a, a you know, con high conviction on polls. We learned that four years ago until after Labor Day. And then I think between Labor Day and the election, uh, a lot will depend on not just Biden versus Trump polls, but what the sort of betting odds, and I don't mean literally in sites like, you know, predict it, but in general, what the likelihood is of a blue wave versus, say, just the presidency uh, shifting parties. Obviously, that has a he makes a huge difference in terms of what in a campaign platform could potentially become policy, whether it's on taxes, whether it's on regulation. So it's not just sort of Biden versus Trump. Is it Biden and a blue wave? And 
Does he move more toward the progressive side of things as it gets close to the election in order maybe to sort of cement the, the Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren kind of vote? Or does he hold true to what many people perceive that he's more on the moderate side? And in addition, if the economy is still weak in that environment, he may start to back away from some of those more extreme policy possibilities like a dramatic increase in taxes. So I'd need the answer to many other questions between now and then. Uh, I think it's it's too simplistic to just say, you know, a Biden presidency means the market's going to do X down or up. Um, I, there's just, there's, there's too much that can happen between now and then. And it's the makeup of Congress that is just as important as, uh, as what the party is in the White House. This is great. It's exactly what we needed. Thank you, Lizanne, for your time. And thank you to our listeners. Once again, I'm John Sullivan, and this has been the 401k Specialist Podcast. 